0: We know the wind's going to be in our face We don't know whether it's going to be category 3, 4, or 5 So, which storm is he talking about? Pick your pick
1: Well, I don't know why I came here tonight That's why I got the feeling that something right certainly is I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs to the left me Jokers to the right Here I am Stuck in the middle With you Yep Yes I'm stuck In From the Pacifica Radio In Los Angeles This is The broadcast As heard On KPFK 90.7 FM In LA Up in Oregon On the Central Coast On KYAQ And in Cottage Grove On Queso. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania On uh, WLRI In Maui, Hawaii On KAKU In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN and Minneapolis St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF amongst other fine terrestrial affiliates and then there's those folks who stream us on the internets on the Progressive Voices channel Netroots Radio Indie Media Weekly FYI Nation Nicole Radio Free Brooklyn GDPR Revolution 99 Workforce Rising and Detour Talk Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me. From bradblog.com, thank you very much for joining us today for... Oh, I want to say another thrilling episode. It's uh, kind of a creepy, scary episode today, perhaps, of the Brad blog, would you say, Desi Doyne?
2: I would agree with you on that. I prefer things to be slightly less creepy, scary, et cetera.
1: Given this uh, monster lurking off the East Coast. No, I'm not talking about Donald Trump. In this case, (laughs) I'm talking about Hurricane Florence. Although President Donald Trump said on Tuesday that his administration is, quote, totally prepared... As Hurricane Florence barrels towards the Carolinas and Virginia and now Georgia, predicting to uh, reporters that the storm would be, quote, tremendously big and tremendously wet. Oh, he's a stable genius, isn't he? Uh, Trump said the government is, quote, sparing no expense to ensure American safety, though separately it was revealed on Tuesday night that his administration had recently moved some $10 million out of FEMA from FEMA's recovery funds over to ICE's immigration detention funds. Nonetheless, uh, he said, we are totally prepared, Uh, speaking to reporters in the Oval Office on Tuesday, citing his administration's work on Puerto Rico, which killed nearly 3,000 Americans at the same time uh, to become the worst natural disaster in U.S. history, at least in more than a century. Uh, He quoted that success at the same time that he was reassuring Americans were totally prepared. He said uh, that Puerto Rico was, quote, an incredible unsung success again despite some 3 3000 americans killed in that disaster trump continued uh, the remarks on wednesday morning tweeting that quote we got a pluses for our recent hurricane work in texas and florida and did an un, un- unappreciated Great job in Puerto Rico, even though an inaccessible island with very poor electricity and a totally incompetent mayor of San Juan.
2: This makes me concerned that perhaps he's not actually listening to anything anybody tells him or briefs him
1: on. Oh, oh, no, no. Don't don't worry about that. He said uh, in that tweet, quote, we are ready for the big one that is coming. Don't, don't you worry yourself, your, your pretty little self there, Desi <laughs> Doyen. The mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico, responded to Trump's comments on Tuesday uh, about Hurricane Maria as, quote, despicable. We will be joined shortly by a 30-year Weather Channel veteran to discuss not just the facts on Florence and why it has become such a monster storm, but as many as nine. Count them now, nine major storms named and otherwise currently brewing across the globe, including at least six surrounding the U.S. right now in one way or another. But first, Republican Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell used the Florence storm as a metaphor for what Republicans may be up against in the November 6 midterms this year in the US Senate.
0: You know, we've got a storm headed toward the, uh, the coast and we know the wind's gonna be in our face. We don't know whether it's gonna be category three, four or five. Almost every election, two years into any new administration, the party of the presidency loses seats. And so we know this is gonna be a very challenging election on the Senate side, a, a bunch of races that are dead even. Arizona, Nevada, Tennessee, Montana, North Dakota, Missouri, Indiana, West Virginia, and Florida. All of them too close to call and every one of them um, like a knife fight in an alley. I mean, just a brawl in every one of those uh, places. I hope when the smoke clears that we'll still have a majority in the Senate.
1: Yes, he hopes, and that's why they're trying to push through uh, Judge Brett Kavanaugh as the next Supreme Court Justice as quickly as they possibly can. Uh, by the way, Senator McConnell, that's Nevada, not Nevada, where they have a, a very tight Senate race there uh, this November with Republican uh, Dean Heller running for reelection and uh, may have some serious troubles this year. We will soon find out in less than two months. Nonetheless, Rhode Island voters went to the polls on Wednesday for the final federal primary election before this year's midterms on November 6th. Mark it down. That's November 6th. And on Thursday, New Yorkers will head to the polls for their state and local primaries, including closely watched races for governor and attorney general, among other things, which uh, that will, uh, as of uh, Thursday in New York, that will officially end. This year's primary season once and for all. On Tuesday, however, New Hampshire voters cast their votes in the year's penultimate federal primary elections. And I'm happy to report that the state which votes on hand marked paper ballots and even hand counts them. In about 40 percent of their towns, uh, they reported few, if any, problems so far for voters on Tuesday beyond larger than expected turnout in many places. Uh, We'll see if things change as far as uh, problem reports go and as uh, numbers are finalized in the coming days. But yes, the turnout was much heavier than usual. Uh, In the Granite State on Tuesday, including in a number of college towns, that's good news for a number of reasons, including the fact that New Hampshire Republicans recently passed a law to make it more difficult for college students to register to vote in New Hampshire, though that law is currently facing a court challenge right now, and it won't officially kick in until 2019 if the court allows it to stand. But according to the Valley News in Hanover, College towns in New Hampshire saw heavy turnout as get-out-the-vote drives and strong feelings about Donald Trump drove many voters to the polls. Hanover is home to Dartmouth College and saw a 25 percent increase over the 2016 presidential primary, according to the town clerk. Wow. That turnout was more than double the number of voters who participated in the last midterm primary elections in, uh, in 2014 back there in Hanover. Durham, home to the University of New Hampshire, saw more than twice the average primary turnout between 2008 and 2016, according to its town administrator Todd Selig, who said in a news release, the quote, the numbers this year simply blew away our historical averages. Those numbers uh, likely come as encouraging news to Democrats, I would suspect, heading into the November 6th general election. Secretary of State Bill Gardner in New Hampshire predicted 90,000 people would take a Democratic ballot on Tuesday, which would have amounted to a record midterm turnout. Instead, as of today, closer to 122 thousand voters cast a vote in the democratic gubernatorial primary far higher about 30% higher than Gardner uh, who by the way more than he's predicted Gardner has been the secretary of state in New Hampshire for 40 years seriously he's been the state's secretary of state since 1976 And he still didn't see this apparent Democratic wave of voters uh, coming on Tuesday, predicted a record 90,000, turned out to be 122,000. Officials in uh, other communities uh, like Lebanon and Londonderry reported increases in turnout compared to two years ago. Uh, Londonderry town manager Kevin Smith said in a tweet that the turnout was, quote, much higher than the turnout seen in 2016's primary. And remember... Those comparisons to 2016 in some of these towns, that was a presidential primary year when Bernie Sanders ran and won in New Hampshire against Hillary Clinton in the nation's first uh, first in the nation primary. We'll see if the high turnout numbers continue into November. But yeah, as to the reported results from Tuesday night, uh, former Senator Molly Kelly, State Senator Molly Kelly defeated former Portsmouth Mayor Steve Marchand to win the Democratic gubernatorial nomination on Tuesday to become the 15th woman nominated for governor this year, which is a record. There's also, I believe, more than 100 women running for the uh, for the U.S. House uh, who uh, won their primaries for the U.S. House this year. That's also a record. Kelly said strong Democratic turnout should send a message to Governor Sununu that voters want someone who will put the people first, not corporate special interests. She's a five-term state senator. She frequently emphasized her experience as a single mother who raised three children while putting herself through college. She will now face the very popular first-term Republican Governor Chris Sununu, who ran unopposed. Sununu is the largely purple-granite state's first GOP governor in 15 years. In a very crowded primary on both the Democratic and Republican side for the U.S. House, Executive Counselor Chris Pappas won an 11-way race for the Democratic nomination in the first congressional district, where Democrat Carol Shea Porter's decision to step down after four non-consecutive terms resulted in a swarm of candidates seeking to replace her. Literally, she has gone back and forth with the same Republican candidate, um, winning and then losing and then winning and then losing and then winning and then losing and then winning that seat for the past decade. Uh, But this year, she is uh, stepping down, um, and uh, Chris Pappas is the winner in that 11-way race among the 11 Democrats running for that nomination was Levi Sanders, the son of Vermont's the Vermont senator and uh, former presidential hopeful Bernie Sanders. However, Levi came up short on Tuesday. The district first district, which covers the eastern half of the state, was uh, once a reliable Republican stronghold. But it has flipped back and forth over the uh, past 10 years. In um 2016, however, even though it went to a Democrat, the uh, the the district there ended up backing Donald Trump in 2016. So this is a very interesting district and perhaps the swingiest of swing districts uh, in the country.
2: Yeah, it's really dramatic to hear about that. Yep,
1: one of the uh, Democratic contenders for the nomination uh, was uh, former Obama administration official Moira Sullivan. She raised more money than the other ten candidates combined. But she failed to win, even with all of those money, uh, all of that money. So um, it's not necessarily uh, money, it seems, that is uh, winning these races for uh, a lot of these Democrats this year.
2: No, it seems to be completely, if I may say, based on voter engagement and voter turnout. And this is something that we've seen over and over and over again in midterm elections and general elections, that big turnout is essential. The margin of turnout has to be larger than the margin of suppression or the margin of dirty tricks in order to make a difference for these candidates.
1: Pappas, uh, who won the uh, Democratic nomination in the first district, is an openly gay former state lawmaker. He had the backing of the two of the state's two Democratic U.S. senators, said he was proud that most of the money he had raised came from within the state and pledged that his campaign will be about decency, unity, and and progress. Uh, That response about the money coming from in-state seems to have been a a swipe at Maura Sullivan, who outraised everyone, raising more money than the other 10 candidates combined. But she was criticized for being new to the state. She just moved there about, uh, I was going to say an hour ago, but it might as well be, uh, about a year ago. Uh, And uh, criticism about voting in general after she acknowledged not voting in several recent elections. Oh, boy. That's not a good look for a Democrat. On the GOP side of that race, a black former police chief, backed by the Trump administration, won the Republican nomination in that uh, toss-up first congressional district. Eddie Edwards was endorsed by Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani. And he defeated six Republican opponents. Edwards is the second African American to be nominated to a U.S. House seat in New Hampshire. Seven Republicans competed for a chance to face Democratic U.S. rep Annie Kuster in the second congressional, the second of two congressional districts in New Hampshire. Uh, she, for her part, faced no opposition in the Democratic primary. As of today, it's uh, it's a very close race for that GOP nomination, with the unofficial first-place finisher being Steve Negron, who's up by less than 300 votes, although the New York Times has called it for Negron today. Uh, he's up just 300 votes over second-place Stuart Levinson in what is considered otherwise to be by uh, Cook political Rep- uh, Political Report. Uh, to be a competitive if, quote, likely Democratic district this fall. We will keep our eyes on that race because if there are to be any disputes about results, at least in the federal uh, races or the big races, that's likely where it'll happen as far as I can tell. And uh, one more uh, one more story here related uh, before we get to. Florence and Olivia, yes, another storm threatening the U.S. this week, uh, and many more actual storms with my guest today. In New Hampshire, a 27-year-old Afghan refugee has ousted a four-term incumbent in the Democratic primary for a seat in the New Hampshire legislature. That's pretty cool. The Concord uh, Monitor reports that Safia Wazir, beat District 17 state rep Dick Patton, who argued that her refugee background would hurt her campaign. Oh, well, that's nice, state rep. Uh, but nonetheless, Wazir pulled out Tuesday's uh, primary victory by highlighting her years of community activism and dedication to education and family issues. If Wazir beats Republican Dennis Susi in November... She would become the first refugee in the state to hold public office. According to Secretary of State Bill Gardner, her family fled Afghanistan in 2007 as the Taliban consolidated power. She arrived in Concord that same year, and uh, this year it looks like she will become a New Hampshire state legislator in November pretty cool wazir uh by the way says she would focus on medicaid expansion and enacting paid family leave in new hampshire so a progressive refugee from afghanistan uh will soon it looks like uh likely be uh sitting in the new hampshire state legislature very cool cool indeed all right Well, enough of that good news of people expressing themselves democratically at the ballot box. Back to the bad news as Florence threatens the East Coast and eight other storms loom across the globe in record warm waters. Weather guy Guy Walton joins us next on the Bradcast to talk about it all and more. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. (laughs) Soon it's gonna
2: rain, I can see it. Soon it's gonna rain,
3: I can tell. Yeah. Soon it's gonna
1: rain. That may be our uh, bumper music understatement of the year. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. People who thought that they were relatively safe from the onslaught of Hurricane Florence finally Began boarding up. Oh, take your time, guys, according to the AP. And Georgia's governor has also now declared a state of emergency in uh, his state as uncertainty over the path of the monster storm spread worry along the southeastern seaboard. Closing in, now slowly closing in, with terrifying winds of around 125 miles per hour as we go to air and potentially catastrophic rain and storm surge florence is expected to blow ashore at least as of now on saturday morning along the north carolina south carolina uh, border the according to the national hurricane center though each day that we have been covering this storm its landfall prediction has gotten later and later indicating at least to my non meteorological eyes A storm that is slowing down, not its wind speeds necessarily, but the speed at which it is moving, which means even worse news for those in its path. But what do I know? We'll talk to my guest about that in a moment. While some of the computer forecasting models are currently conflicted, the latest projections, more or less, Seem to show the storm shifting somewhat southward in a way that suddenly put more of South Carolina in danger and has imperiled Georgia too. North and South Carolina and Virginia declared emergencies earlier in the week. The main utility companies in the Carolinas today warn that up to 75% of customers could lose power in this storm, some for weeks. For weeks. As of Wednesday evening, more than 10 million people are now under hurricane warnings and watches in the Carolinas and in Virginia, according to the National Weather Service, with almost 2 million under warnings to evacuate the coast. Those numbers are likely rising today, with Georgia now in the target zone as well. All I can do at the moment is urge those of you who listen to and or follow our president who announced on Tuesday that the federal government is, quote, totally prepared for this storm. All I can urge is to please ignore him and prepare yourself for this. After all, he made those same comments at the very same time that he praised his administration's, quote, incredible unsung success for their response to Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico last year at this time after which nearly 3,000 Americans died, more than Hurricane Katrina or even 9-11, and power remained out on the island for nearly a year. The Hurricane Center's projected track, at least at this hour, seems to have Florence hovering over the southern North Carolina coast starting on Thursday night or so before blowing ashore over the next day or two or three. That, according to experts, could punish a longer stretch of coastline and for a longer period of time than previously thought. University of Miami hurricane researcher Brian McNoldy describes the current trend as, quote, exceptionally bad news since it smears a landfall out over hundreds of miles of coastline. Well, we seem to excel at exceptionally bad news around here these days on the broadcast, and this storm uh, looks like it will uh, give us no respite from that. But Florence isn't the only thing, nor even the only storm, we all may need to be worried about at peak hurricane season. In a global warming-fueled, climate-changed world, joining us to help shed a bit of light over this dark news today, maybe, we'll see, is Guy Walton, or Weather Guy, as I know him from the Twitters. He's a 30-year Weather Channel veteran based himself in Atlanta, Georgia. And unlike some Weather Channel veterans I could mention, and maybe I will here in a bit, he is not a climate change science denier. He's also the author, with Nick Walker, of a a somewhat satirical new book for kids, The World of Thermo, an unfortunate release, which he describes as a children's climate primer set for publication in early November, just in time for the holidays or for the apocalypse, depending on how you may look at it. Um, Guy Walton, welcome to the broadcast, sir.
3: Well, thank you, sir, Brad. That uh, was a very good uh, summation about uh, Florence.
1: So far. Oh, good. I didn't get it terribly wrong. We'll get into some of the specifics. because oh, uh, not, not at all. Oh, good. Um, uh, but hang on. Let me uh, ask you, before we actually get to, to the specifics on Florence, because I know uh, we're going to talk about that and uh, I want to talk about whether you're safe there in Atlanta, but on yesterday's broadcast, Guy, I noted that there are currently five, five named storms surrounding the U.S. right now. Uh, hurricanes Florence, Isaac, and Helene, and tropical storms Paul and Olivia. But looking at your website last night, GuyOnClimate.com, that number doesn't include Typhoon Mengkut, which is a huge Category 5 that just slammed into Guam. Now it's heading to the Philippines and Hong Kong and three other storms that have yet to be given names, but which could turn into tropical storms or hurricanes at any time now. So my question to you, Guy, nine different hurricanes or potential hurricanes across the globe at the same time? Is that normal for this time of year or ever?
3: I don't believe so. Uh, With the uh, ocean heat content rising and atmospheric content rising, I do believe that you will get more potential energy for more storms. And uh, that's one point we would like to go over with. Uh, Yes, as you get more heat, you mm-hmm. will, you'll get um, more storms, and that's exactly what we're seeing. So that's one sign. And just to let you know, Brad, I believe that we're going to have uh, subtropical storm Joyce mm-hmm. uh, out in the far north Atlantic, named by 5 p.m., uh, at least 5 p.m. my time. And uh, so that will make four just in the Atlantic Basin alone. And if you look at the Gulf of Mexico, there could be a potential... Fifth, uh, that would be, I guess, named Kirk, and that would be coming into the Gulf of Mexico, or affecting maybe Texas and Louisiana over the weekend as well, if that gets named. And by the way, if we have five simultaneous named systems in the Atlantic Basin, that would be a record.
1: Uh, yeah, I saw that uh, storm looks like it's, actually, it looks like it's a pretty big one. Again, non-meteorological eyes, but uh, in the in the Gulf of Mexico, currently, I think it's labeled INVEST 90, 95L. Uh, I'd love to know what INVEST stands for, by the way. I, I don't know, but uh, that should be, you think, uh, potentially rolling in by the weekend to Texas? Uh, yes,
3: uh, probably as a weak system. Um, really, all these systems are much uh the other four systems would be much weaker than, of course, Florence, which is the main concern mm. uh, and as to your other question, in invest is just an area uh, meteorologically that looks very favorable for development. Mm. It doesn't really have a closed off circulation at the surface, and if it did, it would become a uh, depression or a labeled up depression. but mm. these areas are are tropical waves that look like they'll be coming, for example, into a area of favorable development. And uh, that's pretty much what the case is with the invest system at, uh, currently moving into the central
1: Gulf of Mexico. Now, one more before we get to Florence here. Hurricane Olivia, which is, I think, now a tropical uh, tropical storm, Olivia, that is set to hit Hawaii uh, very soon, if it hasn't already hit. Uh, this is just about Two weeks or so after Hurricane Lane dropped record uh, rainfall on the islands uh, as the second worst rainfall in recorded U.S. history after Hurricane Harvey in Texas just last year. Uh, now, uh, Olivia is uh, said to be weakening but picking up speed, and this would be the storm's movement itself, not the wind. Again, not a meteorologist here, but that sounds like potentially good news for uh, for folks in, in Hawaii regarding Olivia? Yes,
3: I don't think that we're going to see devastating effects from Olivia. It's definitely not going to come in as a hurricane, and uh, uh, although I believe that we'll see some local damage from flooding from this, uh, maybe some damage from winds from about 40 to uh, maybe gusting to 60 miles per hour. Or so Uh, right over the central hawaiian islands now what's so so unusual about olivia is that it's coming in from the northeast and if you want to put some climate change perspective on these systems Mm -hmm. is that what you look for are parameters that are unusual and it's definitely rare for any tropical system of any significance to affect hawaii coming in either from the east or in this case, northeast, what Olivia did was actually go, go north of, uh, or north, uh, due north and northeast of Hawaii, mm-hmm. and then start to recurve down from the north. So that's very unusual.
1: Seems like we're seeing a lot of unusual uh, uh, weather patterns of late. Uh, the opposite appears to have happened um with Florence as far as uh, picking, up, uh, picking up wind speed, yet the storm slowing down itself uh, off the eastern seaboard over the last day or three. Which of those two things, the winds intensifying uh, or the speed of the storm itself slowing down, should we be most concerned about uh, at this point, or specifically uh, folks in the Carolinas, Virginia, and where you are now in uh, Georgia, uh, what's the uh, what's the greatest concern from this storm, if that can be quantified?
3: Well, meteorologically, the, the greatest concern is the slowing of the storm and stalling right off the Carolina coast or right around Wilmington, and then very, very slowly moving south or southwest back towards Charleston if it gets down that far. And so if that's the case, well, uh, like Brian McNulty mm-hmm. was saying, you could... Uh, have uh, winds and waves for many, many hours, if not for two or three days, just lashing at the shore. And that could produce more damage than, say, a uh, Category 4 Hugo, which would be moving in and out. And by the way, you may not know it, but I was in Hugo Mm. in Charleston in uh, 1989. Mm. And I was young and (laughs) a little, of course, young and brash and uh, very (laughs) Very inexperienced about about that sort of thing. So a buddy and I from the Weather Channel decided to hop on the road, go down I twenty six to Charleston, and get on the outer periphery of Hugo. And we thought it would be going up towards Myrtle Beach, or at least the forecasters did at the Weather Channel. And lo and behold, it went right up through <laughs> through Charleston, and we did. I did get to see an a one hundred forty mile four hundred and forty mile per hour hurricane mm. and uh was in that for a good five to ten minutes and uh, nearly lost my life from that little thing. But that's wow. uh that's a, that's a story and of itself.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say you were wet behind the ears at the time, but maybe that goes oh, without yeah. saying. I, I was
3: I was twenty I was twenty seven years old at the time. So <laughs>
1: Well, there we go and and uh, in comparison to Hugo which was 89, how does uh, how does this storm look different uh, this uh, several decades later or does it look a whole lot like Hugo? Well it
3: did, but we have had some good news and it looks like there's been some uh, degradation of the eye this afternoon mm-hmm. uh, Not that there's a slight chance that it might come back, but really in my experience when these things start to degrade as they're approaching the coast, even though might they might be a day or two away um they usually don't don't go way back up to say category four or five or high in four low and uh low in five and um so that's that's probably what's going to happen. It will probably come in as a three so it, at least initially it's it's probably not going to set the records that many writers and people were saying, oh, this is going to be the farthest north four coming in or um mm-hmm that sort of thing, but the, the unusual thing about it is that it will stall and usually these things don't these things usually move northeast. They don't move southwest or west along the coast. So uh, as my other buddy Bob Henson was saying, if if it does move west or southwest, that would be highly unusual.
1: The per- and, and devastating, sorry. And and devastating and And that's sort of what's being now predicted, that move to the south and uh, southwest. The predictions a day or so ago had landfall uh, for Hurricane Florence happening on Thursday morning, and then it became Friday morning. Now it looks like Friday night or even Saturday morning. Uh, And and now actually even uh, I saw Sunday on some of the models, the latest I saw. Is that what you're seeing? And what causes a storm? like this, to slow down. Uh, this was apparently at one point quickly moving, but now it's slowing down. And, and why are we seeing so many slower storms like this in recent years? I'm thinking of Superstorm Sandy, of course, uh, Hurricane Harvey, uh, Maria, and this all means hugely increased rainfall. But why does it happen? Why do, do we know why these storms seem to slow down the way they're doing of late?
3: Well, let's see. First of all, let's get the uh, meteorology uh, correct. Uh, the uh, only two storms of note that I know of that uh, actually really did slow down were Harvey, and uh, of course now Florence does that. He has yet to do it, but it would be uh, Florence. Mm-hmm. But uh, what really makes them slow, and also we have um, some paper, scientific papers coming out about this indicating that tropical uh, strong cy- tropical cyclones are tend to, to move slower, are what we call upper level ridges or heat domes, and when these, uh, of course, initially, of course, initially in the deep tropics, hurricanes are, or tropical storms are over these things. But as they move up into middle latitudes, usually they they find their way into an area that uh, can uh, steer them, at least uh, at least moving at least slowly or um, or ejecting and. Uh, Harvey, it didn't happen with Harvey at all. That was a poster child for a storm slowing down because of a warm, I call them uh, global warming heat dome. sometimes when they do that, mm-hmm. uh, because they're so strong. Mm-hmm. And you don't usually find something like a, um, oh, I'll use Metspeak, a uh, 597 decameter heat dome out in the northern and central Atlantic that's that's that was at least it's breaking down now, but it was steering Florence in the direction that it's moving. And then, of course, you have a midsummer type heat dome, so you would find something typical like that in July and August over the, um, the central of the country, which mm-hmm. is going to be blocking it from moving from the other side. And so, the only direction the thing can go would be either west or slowly, very slowly northwest, and then do north. And it may take it all weekend long into the early part of um, next week to just move from, say, the Savannah, mouth of the Savannah River or the Georgia-South Carolina line, all the way up to, say, um, Asheville, North Carolina.
1: That uh, Those blocking patterns uh, that that you seem to be referring to, as uh, Desi Doyen uh, here calls them on the Green News Report, these blocking patterns, are these attributable in and of themselves to global warming and a warming climate that then uh, those big uh, fronts of warm air end up affecting those hurricanes and making them more dangerous and disastrous. Is that all uh, what we should expect in a climate-changing world at this point?
3: In one exact word, yes.
1: (laughs) And I appreciate that exact word because I want to, you know, you're, you're... Guy, uh, a meteorologist, as I understand it, not necessarily a climatologist. I'm, I'm right on that.
3: That that is correct. I was trained in meteorology, mm-hmm. and I've been. Uh, I graduated in uh, 1983, and uh, then joined the joined the Weather Channel the same year, and didn't really start thinking about climate until I heard about James Hansen's. Testimony before Congress in 1989, and wasn't it was not even on my radar. To pardon the pun there, right? And uh, and then so then I became more and more interested in it during the 1990s. And then uh, I started to get so mad at some people at the Weather Channel that I started to track uh, just record highs versus record lows. Mm-hmm. Uh, itself starting on low. Well, let 's just do something new to for the for the millennial mm-hmm. um so the, at the crack of one one two thousand i started uh, uh doing that and then it became a uh a geophysical science study back in uh two thousand and nine
1: and and your um and that sort of brings me to my uh question here and i of course don 't know what happened uh, with the folks at the weather channel, but my My question is sort of why do so many meteorologists, uh, again versus climatologists, but meteorologists and specifically broadcast meteorologists, it seems, even after going all the way back to James Hansen, as you mentioned, in the late 80s, yet they still seem to have all these years later such a difficult time connecting these extreme weather events to climate change. And yes, that. Even at the Weather Channel, where famously one of its founders, John Coleman, uh, you know, has become one of the most famous climate change deniers on the right. Uh, What's up with that? And what would you attribute that to um, as you've been working for all of those years in uh, broadcast media? uh, Why is that the case? Why do we see that from so many uh, what I will call weathermen and women?
3: Well, Brad, I'm going to give you maybe an answer that you might not expect. Okay. When I was going to school, um, I loved to see a very different. I think we all got, as young people, we all wanted to become meteorologists because we loved weather. And we all like to see what we like to see. We like to see, uh, in my case, storms and ice, uh, rare stuff that we used to get in Atlanta, where I was growing up, and became interested in that. And then, of course, the uh, uh, mighty hurricanes, and then, of course, uh, uh, heat waves. So we got into uh, meteorology school, either to become broadcasters, or in my case, a behind-the-scenes synoptic weather person, liking to see, for the most part, cold weather phenomena. And if you think about global warming in the long run, you are going to see less and less of that, and it sort of threatens your sensibility as to what you may or may not like. And I find it very ironic that also that a lot of synoptic meteorologists, for whatever reason, uh, have a lot of libertarian views mm. And so. Um, we've, we've had to actually study hard and work very hard ourselves with no help, and uh, we, that, that's part of that, too. So um, people in general like to see what they like to see, and uh, if anything's threatening that, well, then the denial part comes in.
1: Is there a is there a pressure that that you have observed and I've just got another minute or two and I want to ask you about your book but is there a pressure that you have observed again in in the broadcast media regarding well you know these oil and gas companies put a lot of money into advertising Uh, You know, do do, do those commercial pressures come to bear on uh, on some of the reporting when it comes to weather, whether it's, you know, local uh, local media or even a place like the Weather Channel? Or is or is it just attributable to some other factor that they don't seem to be often connecting the climate change dots, which seems so apparent to the rest of us who pay attention to this stuff?
3: I just don't think so. I, not to my knowledge. I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure that some have been uh, influenced by uh, the big oil and gas giants. But I think it's just a uh, a threat to um, personal paradigms. I really mm. think that's what it is.
1: Interesting, Guy Walton. Before I let you go, here, new book coming out for kids: The World of Thermo. An unfortunate release. Uh, We'll uh, try to talk about it after uh, after you publish, I guess, in November. But uh, very quickly, give me an idea what uh, the world of thermo is about.
3: Well, all my life I've wanted to um, uh, try to educate young people about climate, or not all my life, but since the Mm nineteen nineties. I was thinking, now, okay, how could that? How could it pique some young person's interest about uh, the more? Scientific and, and quite, quite to be honest, dull, <laughs> dull world of uh, of uh, weather and climate to to people who are not, really not interested in it. Right. And um, what better way to go through the route of a little superhero type character, because most kids are interested in pictures and comic books and neat storylines and and Harry Potterish type uh, stories. Of course, mm-hmm. I'm not saying that this book is going to be that. That is good as that. <laughs> right. but, uh, by the way, it will be titled uh, Thermometer Rising uh, instead ah. of uh, Unfortunate Relief okay. when we get it sent. But anyway, so Harry Potter, I mean, excuse me, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Thermo is this little uh, flying thermometer that's, uh, that flies around at the whim of his creator to uh, gather up climate information, and he starts encountering all these different natural monsters like hurricanes and other things, and both his creator and uh, he, creator's name is Dr. Key, uh, discover as as Thermo matures a bit that uh, things are not as they seem and greenhouse gases are changing things. And Thermo's arch nemesis is Carbo, a big uh, invisible beach ball type carbon dioxide model. And Carbo wants to influence human beings such that more and more greenhouse gases, or his uh, friends, so to speak, are released. Mm. So we have a little tete a te with those two characters throughout the entire book, which gets a little complicated, but nothing, nothing more than a
1: a 12-year-old uh, child can understand. Our uh, our uh, friend, uh, Dr. Michael Mann, who's been on the show many times, atmospheric scientist, uh, says about World of Thermo, one of the great ironies of human-caused climate change is that those who had the least role in causing it, our children, will bear the brunt of its devastating impacts if we fail to act in time. He says it is urgent that they be educated about the threat and that their voices be heard. He says World of Thermo uses engaging, magical characters to bring the science alive and inform while entertaining. Uh, We will look forward to that uh, book coming out in early November. Guy Walton, a 30-year veteran from the uh, Weather Channel. You can find his work uh, on the web at GuyOnClimate.com. And you can and should follow him on the Twitters at ClimateGuyW. Guy, uh, really appreciate you joining us today. Hope you'll not mind if we bother you again uh, to join us in the future. Well, thank you so much,
3: Brad. And you can actually call me uh, what I like to be called by sometimes on my blog. It's... uh the climate guy, so there we go. Thank you, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm a subset of Bill Knight, the science guy, By the way. I'm, I'm one of his subsets, so. There you <laughs> go. About it. Thank you. Uh, th- well, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, climate guy. Uh, please stay safe out there in Atlanta over the next few days as this storm rolls in, and stay in touch, my friend. Sure thing. Okay, quick break, and uh, I want to, well, well, we got just a few minutes left here, but I want to talk about, talk about talking about... Climate change, even as a huge, monster, very scary storm is bearing down on some 10 million people on the East Coast. A few thoughts on that when we come back. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <coughs>
2: Don't talk about the weather. Shh. It's a military secret.
0: Just keep your wits together.
2: Shh. That's the safest way to keep it. These are critical.
0: Times.
1: Yep, welcome back. Be careful of welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from BradBlog.com. I'm uh, seeing uh, news flashes coming in that Hurricane Florence is growing larger, threatening a wider area even as uh, there's been a slight decrease in the wind speed. You know, I was talking with uh, Guy Walton over the break uh, there that, you know, the big concern here is really what we could see as record flooding. He mentioned, like, record going back to uh, colonial times, but, uh, you know, we don't have records going back really to uh, colonial times. So really this could be worse flooding than anyone has ever seen in North Carolina though not worse flooding than anyone has expected in the Carolinas.
2: Yeah, one of the things that is important about the statistics on this is that Florence is already geographically larger as a storm than Hurricane Hugo was. But we can assume that there are lots of folks who live there now who have not experienced a major hurricane well, even since Hugo.
1: Well, one of the, uh, the I was uh, this column by Will Bunch in the uh, Philadelphia Daily News caught my eye uh, last night. Because we had been talking a few days ago, Des, about North Carolina and how they had essentially passed a law to make it so that uh, public officials, public documents could not talk about sea level rise that that was essentially barred, banned from, you know, public documents and reports, et cetera, literally by law. This is back in uh, 2012. Will Bunch notes that the state enacted a law that essentially outlawed a report that had been uh, commissioned by the state warning of sea level rise, warning about uh, a huge swath of area that was uh, threatened particularly by, uh, st- by by storms like this and the storm surge that would come in with it. He said it essentially outlawed the report and barred state officials from using its findings to make coastal development decisions. In other words, they could not use the science uh, that the state had commissioned, when they were making decisions about developing up and down the coast there at this uh you know on the on this very expensive real estate right on the uh right on the ocean which frankly for those people who did build in that area over the past few years they may be regretting it in the next few uh in the next few days here depending on what happens with hurricane florence but uh, he goes on to note if uh, if you live in North Carolina, South Carolina, or Virginia, you should not be reading this column. You should be boarding up your home and protecting your valuable possessions before you protect the most valuable possession of all yourself and your family by evacuating to higher ground. He says, however, if you don't live in Florence's immediate path, This seems like the perfect time to look up from the rotating red blob on your TV screen right now for a few minutes to talk about a why storms, floods and droughts are setting unthinkable records for their intensity. B, why in America it's been such good politics to embrace such bad science or more accurately, no science at all. And C, What are we going to do about this climate mess once the damage from flow finally ebbs? He says, of course, many readers are going to say that now is not the right time to mix weather and politics because hurricanes and wildfires are becoming the mass shootings of the climate change debate. Well said. Wow. Wow. Where saying anything in a moment of crisis beyond offering our thoughts and prayers to the afflicted is crass and inappropriate. But he says thoughts and prayers won't help the mostly underprivileged residents of the low lying Carolinas any more than they saved gunshot victims in Parkland. The reality is there's no better time to talk about failure to take climate politics seriously than on the eve of a natural disaster that global warming has made worse. So uh, this state now, several states, uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, North Carolina, for Christ's sake, had a uh, a governor who was uh, headed up a, a coal company, an energy yes. company, Duke Energy. Yep, for he used sake. to be
2: the CEO of Duke Energy for something like 25 years.
1: They've got all of these open pit uh, coal ash pits, toxic coal ash pits. That are wide open, that are likely to flood,
2: and could almost also, certain
1: to flood. I would and, think, and
2: and they will flood. They will take on a lot of water, and a lot of them have the potential of collapsing. Their impoundment walls will collapse, could collapse. The, That's putting the, that all that toxic metal, all that radioactive toxic metals into the water supply.
1: There are um, energy, uh, uh, nuclear plants, about six nuclear plants or so in the path of this storm. You know, if we don't talk about it. If we don't talk about it now, I promise you we're not going to talk about it after the storm blows through because we don't. We obviously. Well, you and I do. We do
2: right, We talk here about- on the
1: broadcast and on the Green News Report. But, right. uh, you know, otherwise, as uh, Guy Walton said, oh, well, you know what to a lot of people, it's kind of boring. And I guess it is kind of boring. We try to make it less so. I don't know if we succeed or not in our efforts there. But, you know, we have to be yelling and screaming about this because this is not going to get better by itself. It is going to get worse. It is going to get worse almost no matter what we do. But the number of storms that we have seen slamming into this, not just this country, but all around the world, Uh, In in recent years, it's getting worse and worse. The storms themselves are getting worse. It's not necessarily the number of them, but the intensity of them.
2: And remember, this storm, this particular storm and all storms, are also taking place on higher rising sea levels, which means that the baseline for storm surge has moved up. A case in point, the Navy shipyards in Norfolk, Virginia, Mm -hmm. Norfolk now floods on a sunny day just with high tide. So with the billions of dollars in military infrastructure alone down in Norfolk, Virginia, that's in danger not just from storm surge today, but from sea level rise tomorrow and tomorrow and in the decades after that. So when you are making your decisions for who to support for your representatives at the local, state and national level... Remember that we need to plan ahead for these impacts that are now baked in, the ones that we can't do anything about now. We can mitigate the impacts somewhat by transitioning to clean energy, but there are some things we can't stop, and we need to be preparing for those now.
1: Yeah, Bunch, uh, Will Bunch notes that down in North Carolina, uh, they have seen an unprecedented level of. Sunny day flooding as well from high tide, some 84 days of it in Wilmington, North Carolina in 2016, with the pace of those uh, events accelerating. And he also notes that, you know, the response from uh, North Carolina politicians, including then Democratic Governor Bev Perdue, uh, she was the one who allowed that uh, law that essentially banned the use of science in North Carolina back in 2012 Uh, She didn't sign the law, but she allowed it to become law without her signature. Um, You know, the response has been to attack science. On the very same day that Trump was warning Southerners to evacuate from Florence's path, his regulators at the EPA were preparing to side with industry. Uh, By making it easier for oil and gas drillers to release methane, which is a huge cause of uh, greenhouse, which a a very dangerous greenhouse gas, a huge cause of rising emissions and rising heat into the atmosphere, which melts the ice caps, which raises the oceans. And we're back here. Uh, He says that will make the planet hotter, making the oceans warmer. Uh, making the next hurricane even stronger, making the next presidential evacuation tweet even more urgent. The same could be said of other recent ill-advised and arguably insane moves from uh, the Trump administration, like weakening emissions rules for cars, emissions rules for power plants. He concludes by saying maybe Florence will be the one That finally causes the tide to turn, that causes our future climate policies to again be informed by sound science and not political demagoguery because thoughts and prayers don't work any better on hurricanes than they do against AR-15s. Wow. (sighs) We'll keep talking. Uh, uh, and until then, my thanks to our producer Desi Doyan, to my guest today, weather guy Guy Walton, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of our show or any other today, uh, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. dot com. Drop me email. I am Bradcast at BradBlog dot com on the Facebooks and the Twitters. I am the Brad Blog. That is it. Until we meet again. Uh, Please stay safe out there. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.